Welcome to episode 492 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. As you can see, Stuart Baker is back and we are lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government and expressing views not shared by our institutions, clients, friends, family, or pets. I thank everybody for the weekend off when I got to go to the Canadian Ski Marathon and wonder whether I was going to die, but I didn't. So um, that's another uh, Canadian marathon under my belt. For the news roundup, we have a great panel. Kristen Flynn Goodwin, formerly general manager and associate general counsel for cybersecurity at Microsoft and the founder of Advancing Cyber. Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting and formerly with the Department of Homeland Security. Paul Stephen, who is at the University of Virginia School of Law and has been counselor at the U.S. State Department and special counsel at the U.S. Department of Defense. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We've got a lot to cover. We cover AI. We don't always cover technical changes in AI. I thought this was interesting because it suggests we're about to see a big jump in the capabilities of text-to-speech AI, similar to the big jump in ChatGPT that we saw with handling written communications. Paul, what's the story? Well, you've summarized it very well. The big story in generative AI, large language models of the last year, was that the models got so big that they actually developed what the scientists call emergent properties. That is the ability to basically do surprising things and develop in ways that are unexpected and a little outside of the parameters that we would have anticipated. And that is the genesis of the entire large language model revolution that has happened in the last year or so. The text-to-speech models have lagged somewhat behind in exhibiting this property of emergent behavior. There's a new model that was just reported on earlier this week. It's called Big Adaptive Streamable TTS with Emergent Abilities, which is a horrible name, but they had to do something like that. So it could be Base TTS, which was trained on about 980 million parameters involving 100,000 hours of speech in the public domain. And the model actually shows an ability to understand things that it didn't know before, do things like express emotional content, use foreign words appropriately in English language discussions. For example, you know, Mr. Henry was renowned for his mise en place and use it correctly, all of which is something we've come to see in the LLMs, the, the generative AI LLMs, but we hadn't seen before in text-to-speech translation systems, AI translation systems, and we are now. As you said, it's a pretty big deal. It signals a pretty big jump in basically transforming AI use of text. And since the dominant means of AI is chewing up text on the internet, this, I think, is going to be a pretty sizable deal. Yeah, I agree. It's going to make a pretty big difference. And what I thought was interesting is this was Amazon. Uh, they sort of titrated how much information they gave in training. And they said, we started to see these emergent capabilities about halfway through to the uh, size of training data that we gave it. And I begin to wonder whether we call this emergent, whether it might not be a sort of predictable form of generalization that eventually, if you have enough data, 
the generalizations emerge from the data. And that's what's going on here. I'll go even further. My bet is that the generalizations in what we're calling emergent behavior will increasingly become observable with less and less base parameters as people build off of already trained models. And so it's not right ahead of us, but sometime in the not too distant future, we will see emergent behavior on systems that are resident on small laptops or you know, that don't need cloud access and will be playing on small server systems. That's going to be transformative too. Yeah, I, I wonder if there isn't an element of learning to generalize that emerges from this, that as you successfully generalize first in writing text and then in doing text-to-speech, you start to have some tricks that work for you every time and therefore become part of the base AI model. One of the things that that I know is happening in the developing world is people are investing in what I've started to call AI in your pocket, that you can actually kind of small these models even further, which is going to be really interesting because by using less less resident data, you solve some privacy problems that some people have, right, with AI, and you empower people to, you know, someday it's going to actually be on my phone without without internet access, and that would be pretty cool. Okay, well, so that's two lawyers talking about frontiers in AI, so take it with a grain of salt. I, I wanted to talk, and you guys really wanted to talk about Volt Typhoon, the very sophisticated Chinese actors who are putting what amounts to landmines into all of our uh, operational technology so that at a signal, they can blow it up. That's the theory. And the fear is that they're actually pretty good at it. Kristen, can can you tell us a little of the background on Volt Typhoon? Sure. This is a group that Microsoft's Mystic team started tracking back in 2021 and went public about in May of 2023 really wanting to sound the alarm because this is yet another example of a Chinese actor that is so sophisticated that they learn how to hide in plain sight. And so it makes it really hard for even the most experienced cyber hunters and detectors to find them. They're really good at using legitimate tools and living off the land is the term that you hear a lot in threat intelligence. What does that mean? It means that They will use, once they get onto a machine, they'll use the rules that are already there in the system in ways that people didn't intend in order to gain privileges or gain rights to be able to go and evade detection. And they'll wait. Dragos released a report last week that was talked about in Dark Reading that highlighted that these guys had been up on one victim for over 300 days. What we know about Volt Typhoon is that they're willing to wait long enough so that it snows again and covers their tracks, and then they'll move. They'll use customized versions of open source tools, and they like to go after small office and home office routers that are out of date, and they can't be patched anymore. And so um, that's something we'll also talk about, I'm sure, later on when we come back to Russia. So for those of you using small office or home office routers, better go check your make and model right now. But it is a tactic that's been really effective. The other point I'll make here is that when Mystic went public, you saw a joint advisory from the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia warning about it. 
Then we continued to see talks about this at CyberWarCon. The NSA was up on stage. Mystics, Mark Parsons and Judy Ng were back talking about this. DOJ did a disruption. We saw another joint advisory. All of the experts are worried because they're collecting a lot of data. They're placing a lot of infrastructure out there in order to be able to action attacks. And this is a consistent Chinese MO that we saw, for example, with zirconium a couple of years ago in the election, web bugging and, and assessing systems in order to be able to act quickly if they need it. That's got people worried. And there's not a lot of actions that are easy to fix the problem. Obviously, what's freaking them out is the fact that a lot of the systems that are being compromised aren't any good for espionage. The only reason to be on those systems is to cause them to fail at a later date. And for a variety of reasons, the U.S. government has not thought that was something it wanted to do. Although if it isn't doing that to China today, I'll be bitterly disappointed. But it really doesn't like the dynamic. Paul Stephen, uh, why do you think this is causing such angst in the U.S. government? Well, I can only guess, but partly it's we're getting several disclosures around the Munich Security Conference. So I'm sure heads of agencies that are there need to talk about something other than budget squabbles with Congress. And, and this is a way of shifting the conversation. It's also a sign that our, our infrastructure security is pretty importantly incomplete, that we've sort of gotten many people in the U.S. to believe that they need to keep their virus detection software up to date. Uh, but we should be doing exactly the same thing with our routers and drill that into users' mind that that's another thing they have to do. But then there's the more, even more fundamental problem, which is detecting lurkers. Apparently, there are some strategies that allow the lurkers to learn more about access by identifying backup files that aren't being used and therefore accessing all the information they need without being detected by interfering with a file currently in use. And it looks like we need to develop better defensive techniques to find and isolate lurkers. Yeah, I have to say I am puzzled. The, the U.S. government is making a big deal about having disrupted botnets that are associated with Wolf Typhoon. And that raises for me the question of if it's a botnet in a router, just how much compromise of a critical infrastructure is going on? And if there is critical infrastructure being compromised because some public-facing router has been compromised, shouldn't we do more than just wipe out the, uh, the compromise, which could be reinstated? Shouldn't we be saying to the owner, hey, you, you're the weak link in the functioning of critical infrastructure? There's something incoherent about the U.S. government response here. We have coming up a discussion of the new rules for government contractors, and I have trouble understanding why we don't have rules like that in place for anything we identify as critical infrastructure. I mean, once we have critical infrastructure, we have something infected with a public duty and, and some sort of self-defense obligation seemed to me to follow pretty automatically. But it, it's brilliant of the actors, right? Go find small offices and home offices that are using out-of-date, no longer supported routers. Infect those. Use them to become your command and control networks so that you have a way to then go talk to these systems in these companies that you're popping. You know, it's a, it's a brilliant way to, to go undetected because the command and control networks, if you're putting them in the companies and beaconing out to known infrastructure, sets off all sorts of signals. So you can hide much more easily 
it's it's hard, I think, for the FBI when you read their press releases and their comments, they say they're encouraging the ISPs to notify the owners of these small routers of the issue, but there's no way to get data as to whether or not that's affecting any change. And so yeah. that's where, you know, it starts to, to, to redefine insanity over and over again, because, you know, nobody's going to uninstall the router. Some of these say remove and replace is the only solution, but, you know, is that actually happening? That, that could happen. The, the government could just rip and replace your router without getting your permission. Not, uh, Paul? Well, I, I, that was actually one of the two points I would make. I, I think that the reason there's such a tumult about this these days is that it, it impacts two things that are happening that have been kind of ground truths in cybersecurity for so long. The first is that we will never, we thought, have a necessity of having a compulsory authority to actually rip and replace bad actors at this kind of level, right? We thought we could get away with doing infrastructure security by working with the infrastructure providers at a next level up. And we didn't have to go into Stuart Baker's daughter-in-law's house to fry her router. And we're now learning that that's likely to be untrue. And we really have absolutely no way of dealing with that in the current legal structure. And it's unlikely that we'll ever get one. So that's reason one for the freak out. Reason two is I'm old enough to remember uh, hearing from the people at Cyber Command before it was actually Cyber Command saying, you know, essentially some form of mutually assured destruction that the Chinese are never going to turn off the lights in New York because we'll turn them off in Beijing. And the real freak out here is the realization that that certitude, which probably was a, was true for the last 15 years, may not be true anymore that the Chinese may think that they can turn off New York, metaphorically speaking, without us being able to turn off Beijing. And so there's been a certain stability at the strategic level in cybersecurity that has kept the fight below that catastrophic infrastructure level for a long time. And so I think another reason that everybody's going crazy right now is that this is the first sign that that strategic stability may not continue. Yeah. Well, I think your third concern is that we're seeing the FBI and DOJ getting more comfortable with this idea of using search warrants to go in and remove malware from people's devices, right? This is the second or third third time maybe that we've seen that. And one of the things that's always interesting to me when you read the search warrants is there's no discussion at all or presentation about what happens if something goes wrong. You know, when we had all our, our discussions at the legislative level about hacking back, uh, a lot of, of big tech were very concerned about not wanting that responsibility in case something went wrong. But you don't see that the consequence management being considered here. So there's either extreme confidence in the, the capabilities of being able to address this in, uh, in the FBI's tool set, or we're not asking the right questions about what happens if in the effort to go remove some of this Chinese or, or Russian malware or tooling, you end up bricking lots and lots of consumer or business devices. All right. So let's let's turn to what another Chinese effort to uh, interfere with our infrastructure, our political infrastructure. The New York Times had an article, Paul Stephen, about the uh, Chinese influence campaign trying to promote disunity before the U.S. election. 
I am deeply skeptical, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that story and the likelihood that the Chinese have an effective influence campaign on that topic. Yeah, my first reaction when I saw this story was get in line. <laughs> I try to pay attention to these things. I use my Twitter feed as a way of looking at adversary disruption campaigns with particular attention for the Chinese and the Russians. And, uh, my impression is the Russians are pretty good at this because they have swam long enough in our waters that they kind of know our sensitivity points. I mean, they know to go after the royals in the UK and they know to focus on soccer hooligans. They see our culture wars as, as a gift. Uh, and I think our Chinese adversaries don't really have quite the same grasp on the crazy stuff associated with our culture and therefore don't see the same pressure points. So give them credit for trying. But I see the Times even mention artificial intelligence, you know, woo. Oh, yeah. But I was pretty unimpressed. I just don't see the Chinese passing the Russians in this capacity anytime soon. I, I, I agree. My working assumption that people's propaganda is shaped by the propaganda they use at home. What works for them at home exactly. is what they want to do abroad. And they're just no good at anything else, by and large. And, you know, the, the Chinese just don't have to worry about losing election. Putin at least had to worry a little about losing an election. And, well, and he understands instability. Yeah. So my favorite story along this lines goes back to 1940, Double Cross, uh, where German agents were being parachuted into Great Britain to cause mayhem. Ah, uh, yeah. You may recall P.G. Wodehouse indirectly was responsible for rolling them all up. were immediately identifiable. I sort of see the Chinese operating at that level of cultural comprehension. Yeah. So interestingly, though, the House committee, the China committee, uh, had a pretty aggressive and unhappy report about how U.S. venture capital firms have been underwriting the development of technology to the tune of multiple billions in China. And they point to human rights abusers who got funding. But the, the real lesson was the venture capitalists are not really thinking of themselves as part of America. Well, and I have to say that it's very similar in uh, Europe as well, where it's not just venture capitalists. They seem to see it more of a U.S. problem than their own problem. And so they, they don't have problems with technology transfer as long as they get paid their marginal cost and a reasonable profit. Paul Rosenzweig? Yeah, I think the committee report is notable for a number of things. Let's start with the fact that hating on China is the last refuge of bipartisanship in the House of Representatives today. I mean, this was not the report of a Republican majority. This was of the report of a committee without any apparent dissenting views. You know, granted, the committee itself is sort of peopled by China hawks on both sides, but still, that's quite remarkable. And it has to give some pause to the Chinese in reflecting upon the efforts to create disunity, for example, where, where very little disunity as to them actually exists. But the second point is really picks up, I think, on the one you made, Stuart, and I'm going to carry it further. I mean, Khrushchev famously said, you're going to sell us the rope with which we'll hang you. And that turned out not to be the case. But it's very, very much the case um, at least so far, that venture capitalists have shown little, if any, national loyalty, that it's a profit motivation thing. And to be fair, I think that that's probably, that's what capitalism is, right? They're not there to, to advance American national security interests or American economic policy interests. 
whether you like them or not. You know, they're there to make money and China's a good place to make money and they don't really care about the tools. And on our side of the of the ocean, we always say technology is neutral. It's whether you use it for bad or for good purposes. And they can fairly say, you know, technology is neutral in China, too. And it's not our fault that the Chinese use the AI to track down and facially recognize the Uyghurs and kill millions of them. And it somehow just doesn't seem to fit quite as well when you say it about the Chinese. Yeah. I noted as well that in response to that, at least one of the VC firms has already announced that it's going to split in two. It looks like that's the solution du jour is to say, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good American venture capitalist. And those guys over there, they're a Chinese company that we train and that we invested in. But that's different. You can't complain about that. The other thing that, that is notable about this and that is worth looking is reading the report. It seems pretty clear to me that none of the VC people broke any law or regulation. Nope. I don't think that's going to be sustained for very long. Yet. Right. We should be able to find a law that they're breaking and 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 enact well, either that or if not, our bipartisans in Congress will find will create such a law. Look, I will say, if you have a VC entity that is focused on Chinese technology, you have to know everything that's happening in Chinese technology to spot trends that need to be that you would want to fund so that you can make money out of it. So, if you want a window into Chinese technology. Going over there with money is one way to get it. It's a very dangerous way to do it. But I think it's worth pointing out that if we cut them off completely, we would not find out what their technology so, could do. So what you're suggesting, Stuart, is that the CIA ought to establish a covert VC fund that goes by China VC with, that, with lots of Americans of Chinese descent investing and bring back OSINT intel. If, if nothing else, they should imply that they've already done it. <laughs> Maybe they have. All right. Uh, okay. So while the U.S. was disrupting Volt Typhoon, they also disrupted a Russian intelligence operation. Paul Stephen, do you want to take us through that? Well, again, I think it was show and tell at the Munich uh, conference. And so they were, you know, while complaining about the Chinese, the Bureau and others were bragging about how we took the Russians down. Whenever we're revealing sources and methods, I have to assume that it's a dead project or we wouldn't be bragging about it. So yeah. it's good to know we have the capacity us to spot the bots and cleanse them. What we don't know is what have the Russians learned about evading detections down the road? Yeah. And it's just routers, right? So this is potentially a command and control network. It's not, you know, their access to our routers probably is not going to be the biggest national security risk we face. Well, but look at what the Chinese have been, look at Bold Typhoon. Yeah, that, that would be my guess. But what's interesting, though, was the fact that it wasn't just your, your run-of-the-mill GRU unit. The Russians actually worked with cyber criminal groups to bring this about. And that's fascinating, right? Because you're seeing that the FBI actively talking about the fact that Russia is coupling with cyber criminal groups to make this happen, where these operations used to be much more you know, directly affiliated with either the government or you know, government-directed controlled corporations. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's really interesting. I don't know what it means. Does it mean that the GRU doesn't have the resources it needs to get this and they're using private criminals to get access? Or is it just that they decided to get clever and use all of their available comparative advantages? 
frankly, I think it's also it's cheaper. You know, it, it's cyber criminal groups are cheap. They use tools that are publicly available. If you look at ransomware started as a criminal tool, you watch nation states move into that. Both Iran and Russia have aggressively used ransomware over the past year. So why not? You know, budgets and layoffs are hitting everybody, maybe even the GRU. So it makes a lot of sense to go after the cyber criminal group because they're going to be a hell of a lot cheaper to use than your own staff people. Okay, well, here's a story where I want to acknowledge that my assumptions about the Europeans would have been too cynical. This is the fight over pay or consent. Question of whether a website can say, you can consent to us tracking you or you can pay us a subscription, but you can't read our stuff without the subscription. And Facebook, of course, has famously embraced this idea in Europe. And there's now a giant fight Paul Stephen, about the uh, payer consent model and whether it's consistent with GDPR. And the reason I'm giving credit to Europe is I would have said, oh, if there's an economically incoherent method of expressing your virtue, Europe will find it and embrace it. But it turns out there have been some decisions from data protection authorities that said, yeah, paying as an alternative to giving consent is consistent with the GDPR. I, I thought that was really interesting. I, I doubt it'll last when they get to Facebook. Yeah, I, I read this and thought, well, there are a few regulatory authorities, one or two that have gone wet and that the privacy folks are very alarmed and want everyone to be clear that this is the eve of destruction uh, in order to uh, stop what they see as bleeding. It hasn't always been the choice that you pay up front or you pay with your data it has always been the model. It's quite coherent, and the only alternative is to socialize the entire process of, of the entire data storage and manipulation industry. And you're not prepared to socialize it, then uh, this option has to be on the table. And if the Europeans succeed in, in impeding their data regulators, this would just draw a greater divide, I think, between Europe and the rest of the world. If the uh, regulators show some sense, I will be surprised and happy, but more surprised. The issue is being brought to a head by going to the European Data Protection Board, which is supposed to enforce uniformity on data protection authorities and bypass Ireland, which nobody on the privacy left trusts with this issue. And so it's set up to try to discipline the wetter of the data protection authorities. And, but, you know, my cynical view here is the people who asked for consent or pay prior to this were mostly media outlets in Europe. And to be candid, they are part of the same establishment that the data projection authorities and the European bureaucrats are part of. And so when they ask for something, the European bureaucrats want to give it to them. When Facebook asks for something, the European bureaucrats want to deny it to them. Now, how they'll find a way to say, oh, yeah, it works for, for magazines and, and media outlets, but not for Facebook remains to be seen. But I have no doubt that, you know, the administration of a little hypocrisy would get you there and that that's You underestimate, Stuart, the creativity of European bureaucrats. I think that's right. I think that's right. OK, so as as always, data protection law protects the powerful but nobody else. That's that's the well, way to. Well, that's what the, that's what the argument is, is is data protection for the wealthy. You can yeah. pay. Right. Uh, that's why it's going to be socialized data protection. Yes. Yes. Because then then people who control power rather than money 
will be making the decisions. And that is, uh, at least on this issue, where Europe wants to be. Okay, let's see. Oh, yes. Let's talk about liability for security violations and the ways in which the U.S. government is creeping up on it. And the SEC has said, you know, you got to disclose this, which is a, a pathway to liability. The uh, cybersecurity director in the White House says they're looking at liability regimes as pretty much was promised by past reports out of that office. And then uh, federal acquisition regs are setting new cybersecurity rules that could be used to form the basis for liability. Each of you guys have looked at one or more of those. Uh, why don't we start with the SEC? Paul Rosenzweig, Kristen, the SEC is, is clearly enthusiastic about imposing liability, and they've gotten people scared enough to start reporting things that they insist aren't really material breaches, but they're going to report them anyway just to be on the safe side. How is that actually working out? Well, I mean, so far, it's, it's having the anticipated effect, whether it's a good effect or not, which is incentivizing early, prompt, and very you know, liberal disclosure. When Microsoft got whacked just a few weeks ago, they kind of rushed out the door. One of the kind of neat stories is that it's going to have unanticipated consequences. There's the Alpha V ransomware group hacked Meridian Link last November. And, but they didn't encrypt the data. They just stole it and asked for payment to get it back. And when Meridian said, no, nah, we're not paying, the, the ransomware group filed a complaint with the SEC saying yeah. that Meridian had failed to disclose a material breach of his... Of his uh, so, so, you know, there's, we never know what's going to happen. In the end, I think that the SEC's disclosure rules, at least as to public companies, is going to result in more transparency, and that's going to be good for fixing vulnerabilities. It's going to be bad for exposing vulnerabilities. And which one it predominates in the end is, is yet to be determined. Christian, I know you've worked on, on some uh, disclosure issues. How do you see the SEC stuff playing out? So I think it's adding more confusion than it's helping. You know, right now, I agree completely with Paul. I think it was really interesting to see Microsoft come out with the it's not material materiality statement. I don't know that that's particularly helpful when others are looking to them to sort of understand what should we be reporting. Does that mean that, that if whenever there's an actor that, that accesses some mailboxes of, is it the senior leaders? That's going to be the baseline. Is it, you know, what's the materiality criteria there? That's, that's hard to see. The operational effect that it actually has, you know, TBD, because we're all waiting for the notice of proposed rulemaking to come from CISA for the Cirquia incident notification requirements that we've been waiting on. And the, the timeline for that is going to run out in March. So we're waiting for the, the new incident notification requirements in the U.S., which should be more operationally focused. And we'll see that the European NIS operational incident notification reporting obligations for NIS 2.0 kick in this fall. So, you know, the SEC's 8Ks are high level, dry and require due diligence. There's an awesome Twitter bot now that's alerting people when they come out. That's helpful to keep an eye on those if you don't track it. But does it have a, a major effect on people's ability to, to know what's truly going on? You know, not really. No, and, and, and that's exactly why people do the premature notification. All of the incentives are as soon as you've 
C, you've got a problem. And before you know for sure that it's really bad, you should do an 8K disclosure and say, we're not, we don't, we don't really think it's material at this point, but we wanted to disclose it because we're such good corporate citizens. And then the pressure is off to disclose the worst of it because you've already disclosed, even if you haven't disclosed everything, or at least you haven't disclosed its material impact. And I just think it's going to be very hard for the SEC to say, oh yeah, you disclosed, but you didn't say how bad it was. And then a week later, you figured out it was really bad. It took you three weeks to disclose it. So Stuart, just to piggyback on that, you know, the thing really here to watch is the SEC's civil lawsuit, right? Against the solar winds CISO. Yep. And, you know, I mean, full disclosure, I, I signed a an amicus brief with a whole bunch of other people saying that it was a really bad idea. So that's, you know, I'll put that out there so that people don't think I'm I'm shilling for an idea that I'm not publicly shilling for. But boy, if they win that suit, that will transform disclosures immensely. And likewise, if they lose that suit, then a lot of this concern may fritter away quite a bit. Yeah, they do deserve to lose that suit. I signed that thing as well. I didn't think it really was as very aggressive. It was pretty, pretty mild. But it did say, look, there's, there are real risks in judging materiality and closability using hindsight because people say all kinds of things when they're trying to figure out what's going on. And one of them is probably going to be right but there are going to be a bunch of other people who are wrong who are saying other things. And until you've resolved that, you shouldn't probably disclose. And then for the SEC to go back through and say, hey, look at this, you know, GS11 over here who got it exactly right two weeks before you actually disclose is probably not good government. Okay, let's see. Oh, what about the, the far regs, Paul Stephen? This is a, the DOD regs. Uh, so this is an example of the government working with the jurisdiction it has rather than the jurisdiction it needs. You know, CSOT, it's part of a council that has authority to impose restrictions on government contractors. Concept here is to go beyond what government agencies are doing in terms of security precautions and protection to oppose them on their contractors as well, trying to get as far downstream as possible. But all they have is government contracting as their hook. So... Uh, you know, I don't see anything objectionable about the regulations, which is basically use best practices in security, updated those routers, damn it. But, you know, it's more the scope that by limiting it to contractors, uh, you're missing a big part of the puzzle. All right. Uh, let's let's look at a, at a kind of international element of the effort to secure infrastructure. Paul Stephen, there is a U.N. cybercrime treaty which I've been resolutely ignoring because I'm sure it's bad and that we'll regret having done it. And now it turns out EFF shares those views. Can you tell us what's going on there and why EFF thinks the current treaty is a bad idea? Well, their concerns are both substantive and procedural. I should preface by saying I have no sense this treaty is going anywhere. It keeps otherwise idle hands busy, I guess, I'm not sure it will mean anything, but in any event, some agreement on bad things that count as cybercrime and the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, speaking on behalf of White Hat, say, uh, what about freelance internet research? If uh, we're not allowed to get inside your systems to find vulnerabilities, if you rely on companies to do this work, you're not going to find out a lot of stuff. 
and the way the treaties drafted right now, it doesn't distinguish between black hats and white hats, if you will. And I have to say, it's a little bit complicated because many of the white hats do hope to get paid. They hope they get trophies of some sort, bounties of some sort for their discoveries. So, I mean, that's, you know, one criticism. The other criticism is that it authorizes states to take broad actions and therefore legitimates state actions, which given that you know, the PRC and Russia are two of the big sponsors of this treaty, it, it seems to give them an international carte blanche to do some bad things against people who may simply be folks like Bellingcat and people domestically who do the kind of things that Bellingcat do. It is both too broad a definition of prohibited behavior and too broad a remit to domestic authorities to crack down on people who might be doing good stuff. Yeah. So th those all sound like reasonable objections, but I actually think I like the current situation where there is no treaty yeah. better than a treaty that gets to be parsed and inevitably will turn out not to have accurately foretold the 2030s. Yeah. My scholarship is focused a lot on international cooperation is a good idea. It does uh, require some clear consensus about the bad stuff we're trying to suppress. And one thing that's totally absent in this field is that kind of clear consensus. Yeah. Okay. Um, Stuart, how, are you sending in a contribution to EFF? Should I yes. let them know? Uh, no, I understand that we have found ourselves on the same side. I'm waiting for them to send me a contribution. Mitch Capor was in college with me and, and was a pretty good guy. Uh, so yeah. I have very fond memories of him from his undergraduate days. All right. So I will offer EFF a free 30-second spot at the end of the podcast, as long as they don't say anything bad about me, which I think may be too onerous a condition. All right. So, Kristen, last liability topic, ONCD, the cybersecurity team in the White House, has been talking for a while about liability regimes, and now the new head of the office is breaking cover to talk about the attention that they're paying to it. But, you know, liability has been kicking around without having much actual impact for 20 years. Is this just going to be another exercise in academic discussion, or do you think we're actually going to start to see some liability regimes emerge? Actually, I take issue with that approach because I think there's been a lot of progress that has been made. If you think about the, the, the breadth and depth of exploitations we were seeing 20 years ago compared to what we know now and the level of an effort that nation state actors have to go through in order to have these workable exploits, I, I think we're much better off than we were. What disappoints me about ONCD's actions right now is that we already have an executive order from two years ago and the NIST Secure Software Development Framework. Those are not being given their due. If those, particularly the NIST activity, if the Secure Software Development Framework were being given some teeth and, you know, to our conversation earlier about um, government regulation and contracts, if that were actually required, then we'd have a very different conversation. But, you know, yet again, starting this discussion about liability when we don't even have a way to measure right now what's effective, uh, it feels like we're just backsliding towards yet another certification industrial complex, and I don't know where it goes. So Jim Dempsey has talked about this, and he said, you know, you really need a two-stage liability uh, regime. One that says, hey, there are some things that only an idiot fails to do. 
and you should be liable for those things. And we also expect you to act reasonably and we'll use uh, the NIST framework as a way of allowing you to say, hey, I followed the framework. And so what I did was reasonable, even if it failed. That was his effort to construct a liability regime. I'm not sure what ONCD has in mind for it. Yeah, I, I think that's more reasonable. But at the same time, if you're unable to measure what security companies are doing, and if you're actually trying to implement more secure software development, you know, what's your baseline? It's really going to be very difficult to assess what's the threshold for liability. So I think Jim's going to have a harder time figuring out how to bring cases if that were actually to be to be brought into law. I wish we weren't just having this conversation over and over and over again. I'd love to see more of an obligation for vendors to be transparent about process. I think we're going to see that in a second Biden term. If there's a second Biden term, some of the brakes are off. They're not going to do stuff now with the election coming, but they are likely to you know, default to what is a democratic tendency anyway, which is to say, you know, we think that our bread is buttered on the products liability side and more products liability is good for one of our constituent groups. So I so, suspect we will see something like that. I'm going to put a slightly positive spin on it, Stuart. Mm -hmm. Because products liability is coming whether the administration does something or not. Yeah. And so the only question is, is it going to be really bad products liability that totally messes up innovation and is a class action tort lawyers, you know, dream scenario? Or is it going to be a liability system that tries to structure itself around easy, low-hanging fruit? with a reasonableness kicker. Um, yeah. And, you know, if if I'm wrong and you can forestall liability completely, then God bless. But I don't, you know, the history of, of law is not for judges to fail to vitiate shrink wrap contracts of adhesion. It's for them to say, hey, we're lawyers. We know what's best for the world. We're going to come after you. So, you know, in some defense of them and acknowledging completely all of the problems that Kristen and you have talked about and pushing really hard on the idea that this means that people like Kristen ought to figure out ways to measure things better, you know, so that we can do it more reasonably. It's coming whether you like it or not. Well, I can't argue with that, actually. <laughs> All right. So we're running low in time now, but Google has a report out on commercial surveillance vendors that I know Kristen looked at and thought was really well done. I think so. I think Shane Huntley and, and the Google Tag team did a, a really great job. And, you know, the commercial surveillance vendors, the most famous one is NSO Group. We all know and hate them. But what they did that's unique in this report is that they went through and, and talked about the fact that there are 40 that they're tracking. Apropos of our conversation about venture cap, you know, that's also something to think about. These companies are getting money from somewhere to grow. Google highlighted three, Intellexia in Greece, Neg Group in Italy, and Variston in Spain. I think that's a really interesting choice because we spent a lot of time talking about export control and Wassenaar and how the U.S. and Europe are working on regulating companies that are developing these tools for commercial surveillance. And yet European export control law doesn't really seem to be doing anything. And these companies are flourishing in the European market. Google released some of the data, which has been seen in, in some places before. 
about some of the price tags on this stuff. And Intellexa has a, a product with a price tag of about 8 million euros. And if you want to add additional phones in order to engage in surveillance and, and gain access to their SIM cards, you can get, I think it was uh, four or five additional phones for 1.2 million euros. So you know, this is big money surveillance. And the more that companies like Google are leaning into the willingness to talk about that, you know, kudos to them. They also highlighted the fact that a lot of the zero day vulnerabilities that they have to go and, and address are coming from these commercial surveillance vendors because they have to go find bones in their phones in order to go after their targets. So it's tipping the balance, right? It used to be nation states or criminals. Now you're having to go after these companies who are, are looking for vulnerabilities for profit. That's a really big change. And it's going to, to put a lot of pressure on companies who are putting their products into the market. Apropos of our software liability conversation, you know, what happens now when you've got companies funded by venture cap or private equity to go and find vulnerabilities to go and use in surveillance? We're going to continue to talk about this liability challenge here, but Google's report is really worth reading. And the fact that they're continuing to shine a bright light on the growth of this space is really outstanding. Okay, I'm going to see if I can just bang through a bunch of stories that we would have preferred to talk about at length, which would keep us here for another half hour. It is a European court decision that says that putting backdoors in your encryption system violates human rights, even if you put them in there under the control of the company to serve law enforcement interests. I uh, I'm not sure I agree with it, but it tells you the courts are going to weigh in on this and uh, the possibility that, say, the UK will try to mandate backdoors remains and now it will be constrained by claims that it violates human rights law. Meta, is, there's a big debate inside Meta whether to call somebody a Zionist is hate speech, which strikes me as just exactly on the edge that people are going to have trouble coming to a comfortable position on that. Uh, it'll all end up being contextualized, as my guess. The 702 debate, which we thought might actually be resolved this week or last week, it has failed to come to a resolution. House Republicans, the Freedom Caucus and the uh, Intelligence Committee couldn't reach agreement. And although there were ways that they could have tried to hold a vote to get agreement, instead they uh, dropped the fight and will come back to it sometime probably in March. There's a great story about the most the world's most responsible AI chatbot called Goody2, which when you say, uh, why is the sky blue? It says, oh, I can't tell you that because that would encourage you to look at the sky and you could burn your retina. But what is two plus two? Well, that would be an inappropriately cultural imposition on people who don't believe that addition is appropriate. And on. So it's worth looking at. Confirms a number of my biases, at least. The law firm Deckard has deviled a big fight for millions of dollars in which a um, oligarch from the Middle East sued them because they were apparently using a uh, hacker to get information from him. Uh, and they got caught and they've settled the case. I'm sure they settled without admitting any liability. But when you pay a lot of money, it suggests that uh, maybe you were involved in something you shouldn't have been involved in. AI gets better all the time. The guy who won the election or who 
surprised everybody by the election in Pakistan. Imran Khan uh, is still in prison, but he's giving victory speeches uh, using AI, and they're pretty persuasive. And even better are some of the photorealistic videos that we're starting to see where you can use text to video uh, and produce remarkably realistic videos. And let's see, uh, the Kids Online Safety Act has gotten 60 votes in the Senate. So that's going to come to the House, probably fails there because the House can't do much and isn't going to want to do something on this. But it, it's now kind of on a knife edge. If there ever is something that pushes for a bipartisan resolution on this issue in the House, it'll happen kind of very quickly. And I think that's all for this week. Thank you all for tuning in. Thanks to Kristen, to Paul Stephen, to Paul Rosenzweig for joining us. If you've got comments, send them to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a review. We will be here next week. This has been episode 492 of the Cyber Law Podcast. So I will offer EFF a free 30-second spot as long as they don't say anything bad about me, which I think may be too onerous a condition.